Welcome to the Araki Zero Games Podcast, Episode 23, The Trumpet. So in late October of 2013, I finally got my first car, a 1999 Dodge Neon that I bought off a friend who was moving away. Uh, I found that I need something to engage my mind while I drive to keep me from getting distracted. Uh, and as a result, I've been doing a massive archive binge of The Bugle, a comedy podcast starring John Oliver of Daily Show fame and Andy Zaltzman, a fellow British comedian and cricket fanatic and presently available at thebuglepodcast.com. And I do highly recommend it if you're into that kind of thing. Because The Bugle has been running on a weekly basis since 2008 and has over 250 episodes, I've had a constant stream of bullshit in my life, more than 70 hours so far. Uh, I'm not sure that's a good idea, but... Uh, anyway, this in turn has heightened my own desire to spew bullshit and make bad puns, so here we are with an experimental episode of the Yaruki Zero Games podcast. Now, this episode is going to include a lot of bullshit and lies, along with some stuff that's real. Uh, so I have a quick example of the contrast between when I'm telling the truth and when I'm not. Uh, so if I tell you that Bill Gates was born on October 28th, 1955, and went to Harvard in the fall of 1973, you should know I'm telling the truth, or at least as much truth as I can get from Wikipedia. If I tell you that while at Harvard, Bill Gates put a piece of code into the school's mainframe that prevented the ghost of Charles Babbage from manifesting, you should know that I'm making this shit up. Okay, anyway, let's get started. The big game. Today is the day of the big game, which is kind of like WrestleMania, but for American football. It originally had another name, which apparently ended in bowl, but the NFL's overly ruthless trademark enforcement scoured the name from the popular consciousness, leaving only the big game. In my area, enthusiasm about the game is limited because the preferred local team, the 49ers, suffered a narrow defeat against the non-local team, the Seattle Seahawks, and thus will have to return to panning for gold during the offseason. Uh, this makes sense if you're aware that the 49ers are named for the gold rush. Uh, if the Seahawks had lost, they would have had to spend the off-season swooping down from the sky to grab fish from the sea to devour them alive. Sorry, I don't make the rules. Nerds have stereotypically had a contentious relationship with sports in general, and football in particular, it being a sport that has increasingly become about massively muscular men slamming into each other over and over. The WWE attempted a lawsuit in 2007, but it went poorly. I've mostly outgrown such resentment, but I do find the degree of enthusiasm and support that the sport receives to be a bit excessive. Few other institutions can coerce cities into spending millions on stadiums that they themselves could easily afford, and certainly no one ever got the police to look the other way when anyone related to D&D committed a crime, though Gary Gygax did get out of one or two speeding tickets on account of the Lake Geneva Police Department, including a few gamers. That said, football itself is actually a much geekier institution than most people realize. For example, Calvin Johnson of the Detroit Lions got the nickname Megatron from a teammate, and it's stuck. 
The NFL has become an institution where Megatron wins NFL Play of the Year is a real headline that can and did happen in real life. NFL players also defy stereotypes, and some are extremely intelligent, which comes in handy for navigating the complexities of football statistics and the six-dimensional chess game of football strategy. There's also Chris Cluey, formerly of the Minnesota Vikings, who so loves World of Warcraft that at one point he was seriously considering changing his name to Chris World of Warcraft, following in the footsteps of teammates Jimmy Starcraft and Tom Diablo II Lords of Destruction. There's also the fact that fantasy football, a game where players simulate running NFL teams, is a thing, albeit with a disturbing lack of elves and dragons. There have also been complaints that the new edition is, quote, dumbed-down bullshit for baseball babbies. One of the more fascinating aspects of football is the countless video games it spawned, especially the Madden franchise. These games have progressed from a simplistic game on DOS, Apple, and Commodore computers with simple pixel art to photorealistic simulations for the latest game consoles. Along the way, the games have become tremendously sophisticated, and each game now includes an iteration of the Mados AI that runs EA's Redwood Shores campus. As impressive as these games are, EA releases a new version every single year, and as a result, the value of older versions plummets to less than a dollar in the blink of an eye, sometimes while you're standing in line at GameStop. Uh, the website SB Nation has a blog called Breaking Madden, where a blogger documents his efforts to thwart Mados and Mados begins fighting back. But seriously, you should check it out, especially the Breaking Madden, the big game. What I'm working on. Alright, now that I've set aside the part where I read about a little under a thousand words to you, uh, this is going to be the off-the-cuff part that's not made up of total bullshit. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about a game I've wound up working on over the past week, which is I Hate Everyone. Uh, I've blogged about it a bit, but I, I think I might as well podcast about it a bit. Um, it originally started, uh, you know, I I talked about a while back how Channel A basically came out of the flurry of inspiration that came from trying Cards Against Humanity for the first time. Uh, and having created too many expansions for Cards Against Humanity based on, you know, themes that interest me, uh, there, there was Weeaboo Bullshit and Grognards Against Humanity. Uh, so I had the idea of kind of making a separate game that was about geeky stuff. And I had been working on that a little bit, uh, but uh, at one point I got in contact with a board game publisher that wanted to do a Cards Against Humanity type of game, um, basically because they wanted something that uh, they could put into normal retail distribution to go to game stores. I, I totally respect the Cards Against Humanity guys choosing the business model that they do. You know, they basically only sell through Amazon, and that works for them. But uh, it kind of sucks for your local game store, which has you know people coming in and saying, "Hey, can I get Cards Against Humanity?" And you know, here's thing that they would happily put on store shelves that they can't, or if they can, they have to buy it for twenty five dollars, and there's no way to mark it up to yeah. So. I had started on this game. Uh, I took the I took my basic ideas and refined them and made some changes to make it a bit less like Cards Against Humanity. Uh, added some added a little changed the basic gameplay structure a little bit and also uh, added some little twists to it. Um, but the publisher basically found another thing he wanted to publish for that instead, and so it didn't work out. And you know, I'm not mad at that guy for that. You know that's what he that's what he chose, and um, 
now that I'm getting back into wanting to work on the game again, I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of having the freedom to do things exactly how I want. So I hate everyone. Uh, it functions a lot like uh, Cards Against Humanity. Um, the the big difference is that uh, instead of having one judge who votes on everything, uh, everyone just kind of at the end of a round, you everyone reads their cards themselves, and there's an element of performance to it. And certain cards will say things like, "Oh, you have to read this in an outrageous French accent," uh, and then everyone picks up a token. Uh, and because the game has a, a theme of social media attention whoring, the tokens are called likes. And you give it to whoever you think did the best. Um, that makes it a little more complicated from a manufacturing standpoint because you need to have, you know, a hundred or so of these tokens included, ideally. But, yeah. Um, so the, the other twist to the game is that the cards can have effects. So, and they're... They exist mostly just to mess things around and, and shake it up a little bit, um, which, you know, isn't necessary. But I think, you know, especially if you have a group that's played the shit out of Cards Against Humanity, it makes kind of a nice change of pace and it shakes things up a little bit and also has the advantage that um, because in Cards Against Humanity, sometimes like your hand of cards kind of stagnates and you end up with stuff that you have a hard time using well. So... Uh, having cards that will let you do things like, you know, and can I mention, I really need to like move or get some kind of soundproofing thing. Cause I swear to God, every time I try to record something like that's when a zillion airplanes start flying overhead. Um, anyway, um, so sometimes, uh, some of the cards have, have effects that kind of mix up your hand. So there, there's some that will say you, you draw this many cards or you discard this many or uh, there's, a, there's a handful of them that will just say, oh, everyone passes their hand to the player to their left. And uh, another game that I tried out for the first time, finally, a week or two ago, uh, has me inspired to try to uh, expand on that element a bit. Uh, and that game is We Didn't Play Test This At All by Asmati Games. Uh, I'd heard of it and, you know, I kind of, I picked it up basically because they published one of my games and I wanted to get more familiar with some of their other stuff on general principle. and. It is a blast. So I mean, the, it's a, it's an extremely simple game. It uh, it, it runs kind of like uh, the the way I've heard some people describe. We didn't play test this at all. Is that it's kind of like a an improved version of Flux, and it's very simple. It's just you know you play you you play the game and you get two cards and you every return you draw one and you play one, but the cards will impose all kinds of other things. So there are cards that will just say, oh, you know, if this happens, you win or this happens you lose and so you you end up playing it in several successive rounds because a round can start and end in like a minute um and if you play for any length of time you'll find out that the, that the cards are really random and just kind of meant to mess with you like you know there's a there's a handful of cards called presents and so the person who plays the card doesn't show the card and they say okay who wants presents and yeah everyone has to say yes or no and sometimes it'll be okay everyone who said yes wins and other times it'll be like, oh, so uh, everyone who said yes, the, the gifts are actually poisonous snakes and you die and you lose. Um, and there's also some really fun ones where it says, okay, if you say the words I, me, or my, you lose. And it's really, it's really hard to keep that in mind while talking. And, you know, sometimes those words turn up on cards and you have to kind of skip over them. One time uh, we got like all of the cards that, limit what words you can say in play and 
two of my friends were going head to head towards the end of the game. And they ended up just silently doing pantomime to get through the rest of the game. Which, you know, it, it gave the whole thing the atmosphere of kind of a, uh, a Japanese game show or something. So it was kind of amazing. Uh, I'm kind of forcing myself to record all of this today because I want to, because a bunch of it is topical and I want to get it done for the, you know, for the Super Bowl and, and other things. But my voice is trying to fight me along the way. Um, anyway, so uh, tentatively my plan to start off with with I Hate Everyone is to uh, have it be something that I sell on uh, drive through cards. If you're not familiar, uh, the guys behind you know, drive through RPG have started up a thing for print-on-demand card games. Um, I've seen some samples and the, the quality is quite good. Um, basically the thing is that they have some limitations on uh, the materials. So you can pretty much only get the actual cards made and it's not like the game crafter where they can make you know add all kinds of components make a box and so on but on the other hand the other stuff that you would add from the game crafter will jack up the price so it's kind of a trade-off uh, but the nice thing about doing a game like i hate everyone through a print-on-demand kind of thing is that the game is such that you know it's basically the, the content of new expansions and stuff is basically text that i put into the cards so I'm having uh, Clay Gardner, my graphic designer friend, do like a template that I can just slot text into. Um, I'm hoping I can figure out the thing that uh, Daniel Solis has been talking about, about doing a data merge thing with InDesign. So that you know, not only can I do this, but I can do it automatically, uh, can automate a bunch of it without having to, you know, spend a few hours manually copying and pasting text in. But we'll see. Um, and that'll give me the advantage of being able to do, you know, first of all, mini expansions that are, that are really easy to, uh, just make prototype and throw up. So, you know, if I decide, oh, you know, the presidential election's coming up, I'm going to do an, I hate elections expansion. That's only going to be like 20 cards and cost people like $2. I can do that. And I'm also planning to, uh, the other big thing that I've been working on is that I want to do. A couple of like alternate sets like another core game uh so the one i've been working on is called i hate fandom and that's kind of uh carrying out my original idea to do have one that mainly consists of geeky stuff um and i actually just posted up the initial print and play prototype of it on the blog although that's going it's going to need a lot of revision and this is like a huge distraction from a bunch of other things i should be working on but yeah that's how i work um Although today I'm going to try to buckle down and work on some other things that I really need to get done. Uh, anyway, that's just something I wanted to kind of brain dump about. Um, next, we are moving on to the next section of bullshit, uh, which is inspiration news. In this section, which would be a recurring segment if I keep on doing this stuff, I'm going to talk about a few different weird news stories that could serve as inspiration for some kind of RPG thing. Now, first off, and totally not burying the lead, Recently, there was a theft at the Vatican. Uh, someone took a gold and glass cane, which contained a piece of cloth soaked with the blood of Pope John Paul II. Police have recovered the cane, but the cloth is missing. So, just so we're clear, the Roman Catholic Church was keeping a blood sample from a dead pope inside of a golden cane, and someone stole it, presumably with the aim of creating a new anti-pope and or performing some kind of a cult ritual. I can't really think of anything else to make up about it, but this is in real life. The, the 
Roman Catholic Church apparently has papal DNA samples. Uh, moving along, today is also Groundhog Day, and I'm sure we're all wishing Bill Murray luck breaking out of the time loop he finds himself in every year. Hopefully he's a football fan. However, there's still the matter of the folk belief about groundhogs foretelling how much longer the winter will last. In Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, and I have no idea if I said that right, but I don't care because, yeah, they're going to have a name like that. Uh, anyway, in that place that starts with P, uh, they await the arrival of a groundhog named Punxsutawney Phil. Washington, D.C., meanwhile, is hosting its own Groundhog Day celebration in DuPont Circle. Uh, however, the only groundhog they were able to get is Potomac Phil, which is a taxidermy piece from a local antique shop called Miss Pixie's, no less. Uh, this will definitely skew his predictions, because being taxidermied will limit his ability to react to whether or not he sees his shadow. Now, on top of that, in explaining their rival groundhog, uh, event organizer Aaron Deneu revealed that they keep Punxsutawney Phil alive with a magic potion, the Groundhog Elixir, which extends his life by seven years. They're hoping to obtain this potion to revive Potomac Phil, uh, though given that this fill is nailed to a piece of wood, it may not be a good idea. Also, the town of Punxsutawney apparently has access to a miraculous life-extending elixir, so there's that. Friday was also the Chinese New Year, though the celebration runs for 15 days in all. The BBC's subtitling system had a bit of a hiccup, though, and announced, Welcome to the Year of the Whores, People Around the Globe Celebrate. And while admittedly a lot of people around the globe would celebrate a Year of the Whores, it's actually the Year of the Horse. Now, Japan has its own New Year's traditions, held according to the Western calendar nowadays, and the Chinese New Year mainly results in fan art of girls riding horses, horse girls, and the occasional centaur girl showing up on Pixiv. Hasbro, meanwhile, is celebrating with a limited edition figure of Pinkie Pie from My Little Pony in a red Chongsam, and with authentic, simplified Chinese writing on a box, decorated in typical Chinese New Year style, so it's not just bronies who are putting MLP into freaking everything. Uh, in China, however, the New Year is the single biggest travel day of the year, with literally hundreds of millions of people making journeys to visit families, though according to a survey published by the Chinese news site Sina, some 4% of travelers surveyed were planning to visit their horses, and 19% their whores. I made up that last bit. Alright, and one last section to finish this off and totally kill my voice, which is Kickstarter stuff. So first off, I want to talk a bit about the Golden Sky Stories Kickstarter. Obviously, that was my first experience running a Kickstarter, and you know it was definitely a learning experience, and there's definitely a lot of things I want to do differently next time. I think the really big thing is just that, you know, the the planning and paranoia and pessimism that we put into getting it ready ahead of time really paid off. Uh, we were really careful about, you know, prices. We gave ourselves a lot of padding and uh, spent a lot of time nailing stuff down. And that that really, really paid off. Because, uh, you know, we've heard more than enough horror stories about uh, Kickstarters that lost money for the, uh, for the project creators. And we were doing a Kickstarter because we didn't really have any money to spare to, to publish books at all. So, I mean, you know, I took the minimum estimate for the number of books we wanted to get printed and 
you know, added padding for taxes, for Kickstarter fees, for shipping. And that was how we arrived at the base price for the Kickstarter. Um, another thing is that Kickstarters that get anywhere generally have uh, higher tiers because they have uh, what I've taken to calling super fans. The bulk of backers are, are going to go for one of the lower tiers, whatever gets them you know, the base product. And that's what I do personally. But there are people who will happily hand you over like $200 if you give them something appealing to spend it on. Uh, you know, and that's exactly what we got. We, we even got three people who pledged $500 and we're going to be uh, actually running a Skype game for them along with giving them a ton of stuff. And my voice is dying and I didn't really have any specific plans for this part. So yeah. Um, but uh, let's see. The other thing is that uh, you know I have come to have feel kind of ambivalent about stretch goals. It's again the thing that you know what I do personally versus what I what I do because I know it appeals to other people can be a bit different. Because to me personally, stretch goals are are neat, and I don't I'm not opposed to them per se. But I don't think I've ever run into a Kickstarter where I I wasn't going to sign up for it, and a Kickstarter was or a uh, a stretch goal was what made the difference and convinced me to, to pledge. From the creator side, the thing about stretch goals is that uh, they just they create this pressure to make stuff. Um, and making stuff takes time and effort and often money. So it, uh, you know, with Golden Sky Stories, just getting the book done took a tremendous amount of work. And, it le and you know, the stretch goals leave us with still quite a bit to do. And, you know, the stretch goals helped, you know, drive enthusiasm for the project, but they also it also means that we have like even now like three more major pieces to do in PDF form. So, uh, you know, to anyone who's thinking of doing a Kickstarter, my big piece of advice is know when to put on the brakes. You know, that where that's going that where that point is going to be is really going to be be, you know, to your judgment, but there's going to be a point where you just have to go, no, this is as much as I'm willing to commit to right now, regardless of how many people are clamoring for more. Because, you know, when you do one Kickstarter, you can always do another one later for something else. Uh, now, on the, the Golden Sky Stories front, the good news is that uh, we've pretty much shipped everything out to backers. Uh, and that's like, that is such a huge milestone. I can't even... I, I do sometimes get a little emotional about it because, you know, so many people have been so positive about being so excited to finally have the book in their hands and complimenting how beautiful they find it and so on. Um, back in 2008, actually, man, it's been a long time. Um, I was doing my, my master's degree in Japanese and uh, for my graduate project, uh, one of the options was to do a translation project. So I decided to uh, see if I could talk my advisor into letting me translate Golden Sky Stories, then, you know, Yuyake Koyake uh, as my project. And, you know, we had to limit it to like the first half of the book, but that was where I actually did it. And, you know, uh, my advisor and I had to go over like every word of that translation. And so I made a point to send her a copy and I got an email back the other day congratulating me on, do on accomplishing that. So that meant a lot to me. And, you know, from here we need, we have, we have, uh, as I said, some PDF stuff left to finish up and, uh, we need, we're going to get into, uh, working out details of distribution and, uh, and, uh, 
doing some convention presence. That's mainly going to be uh, not me, but my business partner, Mike, handling that. Um, I'm not sure. We're, we're still... Because we have to do taxes and send a royalty payment to Kamiya and a few other things. So we're not entirely sure what our budget is going to be. So I'm not sure which specific cons. I think we're going to start more with... Uh, concentrating on stuff that's around our local area around the the uh the bay area around uh san jose and san francisco but we will be doing some other stuff that reaches a bit further um, but anyway uh and lastly i wanted to mention a few kickstarters going on right now that that uh, i find interesting um the whispering road is a tabletop rpg that's aimed to be about uh to to convey the general feel of like Miyazaki movies, the Studio Ghibli stuff like My Neighbor Totoro and Spirited Away and so on. It's $5 for the PDF and $20 for the uh, print book. So, you know, I figured why not? Um, and also the, uh, you know, I really like, I just really like the idea of kind of a more, more like, you know, whimsical, heartwarming RPGs coming into the world. And I actually ended it up, uh, talking to the project creator a bit, uh, giving him some advice based on my experience with Kickstarter. So I'm really, I'm really hoping that turns out well. Let's see. There's also Dice Empire, uh, which is basically a Kickstarter that they're doing a bunch of different kinds of custom dice. Uh, it's, it's all D6s with really cool artistic designs. Um, kind of in the, in the general vein of uh, the Q Workshop stuff, but a bit more uh, experimental, I guess. So, uh, if you're like me and a lot of other gamers and collect way too many dice, that's one to look into. Um, and lastly, there's Japanese The Game. This is a card game intended to help you learn Japanese. Um, it's basically, there, it has words on cards that, uh, you know, they, they're, they're clearly labeled with the Japanese text, the Romanized text, the meaning part of speech and so on and it's basically you're, you're kind of competing to build sentences out of the cards that you have and the kickstarter ends in a few days and it's been a tremendous success so they've been they've hit stretch goals to do a bunch of uh expansion decks and things like that and it looks really cool so yeah there's that all right um so my voice is just about gone now so i'm going to uh finish up this podcast I don't know if you liked or hated what I subjected to you two this time, but yeah, we'll see. Um, anyway, as usual, thank you for listening, and I hope to be heard by you again soon.